Sometimes, real life is stranger than fiction. This is a reality trip with Ben Farmer Jr. Hello, everybody. This is Ben Farmer Jr. Thank you for joining us today. This is Reality Trip. I get to talk about some interesting stuff today when it comes to anxiety, talks about addiction. We get actually get to talk to an actual neuroscientist today. Um, his name is Ian McLaughlin, and I actually got a chance to meet Ian on a Periscope of all places. I saw his headline. It said, uh, I'm a neuroscientist. Ask me anything. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I love neuroscience. I love, you know, um, psychology. I love studying anxiety and addiction. And I was like, well, I love asking questions too. And I got on his Periscope and he did a really good job of, of just talking and explaining these things. And I think that's the other thing that's interesting about Ian is he focuses on anxiety and addiction. So with no further ado, Ian McLaughlin, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm good. Thanks a lot. Cool. How are you? Good. I'm doing good. Thank you. So for a little bit about the audience who may never heard of you, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? What did you do and how, how did you come into being a, a neuroscientist? Sure. So, um, so right. My name is Ian um, and I am about a year away from finishing my PhD in neuroscience at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I work in a lab that really got its start in studying addiction. Uh, mostly nicotine, but um, also cocaine and alcohol, mm-hmm. and most recently some opioid research as well, uh, like morphine in particular. But um, we're just exploring the opioid uh, receptor system, which perhaps we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but my uh, project, while I'm interested in addiction, I'm more interested in sort of the fundamental circuitry underlying uh, the elements of consciousness that these various drugs alter. Um, and become uh, uh, to a pathological level when um, in an addicted state. Mm -hmm. Um, So in particular, I study anxiety. um, And um, I'm studying this very, very primitive sort of part of the brain that seems to be associated with anxiety that's expressed during withdrawal from pretty much any one of those drugs that I just mentioned. So when people take these drugs chronically, they develop Uh, chemical dependency, um, which is an an element, a component of addiction. Mm -hmm. And then upon cessation, they have this very severe withdrawal syndrome. And one of the symptoms of that syndrome is anxiety. And so um, when we basically inactivate this central circuit, um, that anxiety is essentially abolished. Um, And so we are uh, exploring whether or not this circuit might be um, involved in anxiety independently of drug withdrawal, just sort of generally, like when you're giving a talk in front of a bunch of intimidating people or, you know, when you, uh, when you think you might be, you know, being watched or something. Right. Okay. Well then let's, let's start at the beginning with that a little bit. Um, what, what is anxiety? I mean, why, why do we even have anxiety disorders? Right. Yeah. Well, so, so that's, that's a pretty big question, right? And it's part of what I'm studying, but, uh, so, so um, we, you know, at, at, from a neurophysiological perspective, we distinguish anxiety from something like fear, which is, you know, of course, quite similar um, in saying, basically designating fear as, you know, your cognitive and physiological state when the bear is inside the room, when you're immediately threatened. And anxiety is the cognitive state that um, is associated with the preparation or the expectation that you're going to engage with something that might cause fear. Um, if that makes sense. So you, you, you know, as opposed to having a bear, you know, barrel into your room and threaten you with its massive claws, um, you sort of, you expect that this bear might, uh, invade your room and invade your privacy and perhaps attack you. Right. Um, so it's sort of like a preparatory, um, uh, uh, physiological state, cognitive state. Um, and you know, and so there's some obvious sort of evolutionary explanations for why this might've occurred, right. Um, to essentially prepare you to engage in behaviors to avoid whatever it is that threat might be. Right. And, and since it's, it was, since we're in the process of understanding anxiety, what's, what's going on in the brain? Cause we, we do understand that there's the fi- fight or flight response and, and how does that under, how do we understand our world today when it comes to anxiety, what's going on in the mind? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we could get pretty deep into the weeds here. Um, but, you know, usually when we talk about fear and anxiety, um, we generally are talking about the, um, the amygdala, the extended amygdala, and then the circuit that I study. Um, but essentially what's going on is various parts of your brain, the amygdala, the lateral hypothalamus, uh, you know, the dorsal uh, motor uh, nerve of the vagus, nucleus ambiguous, the parabrachial nucleus, all of these very primitive parts of the brain are essentially um, de- devoting energy to preparing your, your cognition and your body to avoid this expected threat, 
right? And so those, you know, things um, that happen in your body include, you know, uh, changing your respiratory rate, you know, changing your breathing, uh, changing your blood pressure, changing your cardiovascular sort of rhythm, um, you know, dilating your pupils, um, a bunch of things that will sort of do everything you can to prepare you to deal with, you know, what you, what your body has evolved to perceive as a threat to your survival. Um, and so, you know, we can talk about, you know, the circuitry in the central nervous system that actually promotes that. Um, but essentially in a nutshell, that's what's going on. Okay. And then briefly, let's, let's talk a little bit about addiction. What, what's an addiction? Yeah. So an addiction, I mean, this is, you know, a, a fairly contentious discussion, um, even within the sciences, but certainly within um, society. Um, and so there's sort of two different camps uh, in science that describe addiction. One is the Roy Wise camp, and these are some, you know, very prominent uh, neuroscientists, Roy Wise and George Koob. And basically, um, they sort of disagree on the semantics almost, um, but basically it is, uh, it, it's a behavioral um, condition where it's the result of the self-administration of drugs that um, strongly elevate ex uh, uh, concentrations of neurotransmitters that we evolved to indicate positive uh, uh, environmental interactions, right? So, you, you know, I, I, I hate to call it reward, but it's what sort of society calls reward mm -hmm. um, because it's not so simple as that. But from a clinical perspective, it's, it's a lot simpler. And in fact, I kind of prefer the clinical definition. And uh, because it's more, it's more comprehensive, and it, it is that it's just the recurrent engagement of a behavior or a drug uh, in the face of negative, obvious negative consequences. So you know, it's smoking crack and buying crack despite the fact that you can no longer afford your rent and your partner has left you, and you can't hold a job. Um, you know, smoking crack is clearly associated with these negative outcomes, but you continue to engage with it because you're addicted. You know, that's a really great point because one of the things that we talk about with this war on drugs is, uh, you know, for many years we thought, you know, if we just confine people, if we just give them uh, prison sentences, that somehow that's going to fix the problem. But obviously there's a, there's a much deeper understanding when it comes to addictions and then why we actually become addicted to things. Um, can we talk a little bit about, I know we, we don't like calling it a reward system, but, but can we <laughs> talk about why we do have that? What... What are the responses when it comes to reward? Why do we even have a reward system in our mind? Sure, yeah, that, that's um, another big topic. Uh, <laughs> man after my own heart. So, um, and by the way, your point on on imprisonment is is a critical one, and, and perhaps we'll return to that. But um, so so dopamine, um, you know, when usually when you say you know what is the reward neurotransmitter to to somebody who is you know somewhat familiar with with the brain, they'll say it's dopamine. Right. And usually people talk about dopamine because essentially every drug that people do to make them feel good, that includes alcohol, morphine, uh, amphetamine, cocaine, all of these drugs at a minimum elevate dopaminergic transmission. And um, and so we have this very, again, primitive circuit. It's it's expressed in everything from humans to other primates to mice uh, and even more primitive uh, organisms. Um, and essentially what the role of dopamine in the cognitive control of behavior is, is to enable you to adapt to changing environment, environmental stimulation. Um, and so, um, you know, it, a little bit more specifically, it's involved with the suppression of inappropriate behaviors associated with punishment, right? And that would be a hypo-dopaminergic or too, uh, a deficit of dopamine signaling, or it's the maintenance of appropriate behavior based on reward. And so, you know, you something good just happened. You just did something, whatever it might be, studying, gambling, having sex, whatever it might be. And you have an elevation of, of dopamine. And so to your your uh, neurophysiology, that's saying this is good. Let's do this again in the future. Sometimes when we have an addiction or when we're trying to actually do something biologically, like, for example, you know, we have a dopamine response when it comes to, like you said, food and to sex. What is the reasons why we even have them in the first place? I mean, of course, we don't know exactly why, right? Um, you can only really explain it from a sort of evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. And that is that, you know, we have this extraordinarily complex brain, right? The most complex brain, certainly on Earth. <laughs> and um, essentially, it is a mechanism that enables us to optimize decision making. So it enables you to adapt to changing environments, right? So um, it enables you to remember, you know, it, at a more primitive level, remember where food was in your environment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but now in a more modern context, it would be, you know, let's avoid telling this joke in a bar because I got slapped the last time I said it. And so it's probably not a good idea in the future. So it's, it's just it's associating valence, what we call valence, associating positive or negative emotional states with behaviors to teach you whether or not you should engage in that behavior in the future. So what's the correlation between um, anxiety and addiction? Yeah, well, so there's definitely um, what we would call a comorbidity between anxiety-associated conditions. So that's like generalized anxiety disorder, um, you know, insomnia, um, conditions like that, and addiction. So in other words, there's, there's an overrepresentation of people who have anxiety-associated conditions among addicts. And, um, and you know, uh, again, this is not something we thoroughly understand. We know the correlation is there, um, and there's almost certainly a causation there as well. And George Koob, that one of those... A uh, famous scientist I talked about earlier would argue that um, anxiety is an aversive emotional state, right? It's it's not a state that you are comfortable maintaining for very long. It's supposed to prompt you to make some change, right? To change whatever it is that's causing you anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so what some of these drugs do really effectively is obliterate that anxiety for short periods of time. And so, um, you know, alcohol is, is a classic explanation. And in fact, when I'm, when I'm periscoping, this often comes up. Why is it that I can't just drink to deal with my anxiety? And it's because while in the short term it does reduce the severity or it bluntens uh, the severity of, of an anxious state, in the long term it actually exacerbates it. And so, you, you know, while you've alleviated it short term, after the effects of alcohol or whatever drug somebody's taking to alleviate anxiety terminate, you will achieve even greater levels of anxiety. And this is true not only for alcohol, it's true actually even for uh, cigarettes and nicotine. Um, and so, so for example, with, with um, smokers, smokers very regularly report that one of the major reasons, if not the only reason they smoke, is to alleviate anxiety. But what's interesting is that they also report that between cigarettes, so you know, most smokers don't just smoke one cigarette a day, um, between cigarettes, um, they report greater and greater levels of anxiety. It just sort of progressively climbs. And so it's like this interesting um, um, you know, relationship that somebody forms with this compound to help them reduce anxiety in that it does reduce anxiety acutely or for a short period of time, but it actually exacerbates it over the long term. So then what's going on neurochemically in the brain then? Like, it's, for example, let's say I'm, I'm an alcoholic, right? When mm-hmm. I'm putting that drink into my system, what's going on in my mind in that moment? Right. Yeah. So, so all of these drugs are going to have slightly different effects and interactions with the circuitry that um, underlie or underlies um, anxiety. But, um, but in a nutshell, let, let's take alcohol, the, the example you brought up. Um, so alcohol, among a variety of things, it's one of the dirtiest drugs out there in that it has just a huge swath of pharmacological action. But one of the most important, most pertinent to this conversation is that it promotes GABAergic signaling. GABA being the principal inhibitory neurotransmitter, meaning so when there's a lot of GABA signaling, there's sort of a calming down of electrical, electrochemical signaling throughout the rest of the brain. And so it's just sort of like this global turning down of the volume in synaptic transmission or communication between different parts of the brain. And so while it's turning down, because it's turning down essentially every part of the brain, among those parts of the brain are, it is a circuit that is responsible for promoting anxiety. Um, and so alcohol, you know, in turning down the global volume of the brain, it's turning down the anxiety, the, the volume of anxiety transmission in the brain. Um, but, but then, you know, why does it get worse? Well, um, you know, oftentimes uh, in class, we'll call the brain a homeostatic engine. And by that we mean, it's just a, a, a you know, a, a long word for no good reason, but uh, basically what it means is that the brain will undergo adaptation to reapproach its physiological baseline, its sort of genetically defined baseline. And so um, that's the reason that, you know, people call, for example, doing heroin, like chasing the dragon. Um, well, there's a variety of reasons people call it that. But, um, but essentially, you will never be able to maintain the the immediate pharmacological action of alcohol, right? So your brain will change the number of GABA receptors present on synapses. It will, uh, the GABA receptors themselves will start to respond less to the action of alcohol or the action of GABA. Um, And so there's just a variety of things where because your GABA signal is so elevated because you have this alcohol in your system, the brain is going to turn down its own GABA system because now that alcohol is elevating the GABA uh, uh, levels for it. And so as a result, when you take alcohol out of the equation, you now have a deficit 
of GABA signaling. Your, your, your GABA levels are too low. And among the, the various uh, symptoms of withdrawal, that is a withdrawal state. And among the various symptoms are elevated anxiety, and in the case of alcohol, potentially seizure. Heroin uh, is definitely a drug that is definitely very powerful in the mind. First off, why is it so powerful and why is it so hard to get off of that drug? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and frankly, we don't know exactly why it is hmm. that heroin. So, so opioids. Uh, OK, so when I say opioids, that's any molecule that's capable of binding to the receptors that morphine is capable of binding. And so morphine, uh, heroin, which is essentially just a modified morphine molecule, uh, but then also oxycodone, that's an oxycontin, um, hydrocodone, that's in Vicodin. All of these molecules are capable of binding a particular receptor in our brain or in our nervous system called the mu opioid receptor. And so um, this is a receptor that, for example, endorphins bind to, and they regulate both pain, which is why they're usually prescribed, as well as mood. And so you can sort of think of it as like um, these compounds are capable of killing pain, but also killing negative emotional states. And so because these compounds so powerfully regulate emotional states, it's like tapping directly into the circuitry that we evolved to impart positive emotion, right? And so part of the reason for why you know withdrawal from, from heroin is just so harrowing, so severe, it's arguably the most severe, is because the very circuitry that we evolved to enable us to be comfortable and satisfied and gratified is at a deficit of signaling. It's just, there's not enough signal there. And as a result, it's just, you feel the very opposite of the effects of the drug for an extended period of time. Um, but then, uh, so, so then, you know, another drug, why don't we compare that to something like cocaine, for example. Cocaine is also a highly addictive drug and it's extremely rewarding, but it's entirely different in its pharmacological action. And um, so part of the reason is because cocaine you know, while they both elevate dopamine, cocaine doesn't um, so directly interact with uh, circuitry within our, our brain that um, underlies those just general positive emotional states, you know, uh, gratification and satisfaction. It's more just the expectation of reward. It's more that feeling that you get right before you think you're going to win the lottery or win, win, you know, a bet that you place on, at a roulette wheel. And so that's a more specific um, part of, you know, um, of our neurophysiology. And so as a result, the, the addiction isn't the same, right? They're still both addictive, but it's not, it's just a different part of our brain. And so as a result, the withdrawal syndrome is slightly different. How does uh, serotonin play a part in any of this? Well, yeah. So, I mean, serotonin and, and pretty much any neurotransmitter you can name will play a role in all of these drugs. Um, so serotonin is, um, it's a very, so the serotonergic, um, uh, signaling system is extremely complex and diffuse. And so it, in terms of where in our brain, our serotonin typically comes from, we usually talk about the raphe nuclei. Um, and so, um, this is basically a part of the very tippity top of our brainstem. Um, it's actually very close to where a majority of our brain's dopamine comes from, the ventral tegmental area. And so these parts of the brain are very, very close to each other. And they, they just regulate, you know, more frontal structures like the prefrontal cortex, for example, or, you know, the, the striatum, you know, these sort of newer, evolutionarily newer parts of the brain. Um, they'll uh, signal, you know, everything from appetite to, you know, waking states to anxiety and, and depression potentially. And so um, part of the reason for why, you know, um, cocaine or, or, you know, MDMA, ecstasy, um, changes your mood states are because they change the way serotonin is signaled. Um, but it's important to say that, you know, like, like and, and it's, it's true that recently you've heard serotonin being sort of bandied about as the other reward, you know, neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's just so much more complex than that, right? So for example, when people take LSD or acid, you know, or, or, um, or psilocybin magic mushrooms, those drugs are interacting even more directly with serotonin and you're not getting the same kind of effects, right? You're getting a much more sensory related, uh, uh, you know, uh, spectrum of effects as opposed to just the pure, you know, hedonic pleasure derived from heroin or, or cocaine. I, you know, I, in fact, if we have time, I'd like to go into a little bit about the psychedelics and what's going on. If, if we have a chance to uh, sure. talk about that, um, I'm going to go back to anxiety again real quick. I know we're bouncing back and forth, but I'm trying to uh, build a picture here when it comes to anxiety. And we're talking about the, the, 
I guess it's almost like the overprocessing of the mind. What's going on in the mind that's causing, you know, um, whether it's memory problems, insomnia? So insomnia, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an inability to fall asleep. And, and surprisingly enough, right, so for people that don't have trouble sleeping, this comes as a bit of a shocker, but sleep is actually difficult to achieve for a lot of people because it's kind of this delicate interaction between disparate or, or distant parts of the brain. Um, so like the, the ventrolateral preoptic area has to communicate with the suprachiasmatic nucleus, right? These are parts of the brain that are not right next to each other. Um, and there has to be a, a nice sort of almost like a ballet dance of interactions, you know, uh, an appropriate cascade of signaling that's required for somebody to be able to achieve sleep. Okay, but so why does anxiety or fear, et cetera, why do they inhibit the ability to achieve sleep? Um, so basically, you can imagine your mind, right, the, the byproduct of your brain's activity as something like the House of Representatives in the United States, where, or, or maybe, you know, what Americans know of as, as the British Parliament, where there's just a bunch of people screaming and yelling, and they disagree, and they're all trying to sort of vying for dominance in terms of, you know, what they're trying to put into the conversation. And you can imagine there's different parts of the brain, different circuits within the brain that are all um, um, generating signals. Right, competing for um, dominance, for signaling dominance. And when you have just this elevated anxiogenic or, or anxiety-associated signaling, it, it just dominates every other aspect, uh, every other or contributor right, to the fabric of your mind. Right? And so as a result, you just never get a chance to, to escape that pattern, that loop of cognition. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it's just such a strong signal. And it makes sense, right? This is a very important survival signal that we evolved to promote survival right so it makes sense that it would be it would be so dominant um but but uh, but yeah essentially that's how it prevents us so when we're talking about that too how does that affect our our cognitive ability say for example let's talk about a uh, concentration or memory what's going on there yeah i mean anxiety um and aversive emotional states in general definitely influence not only your ability to learn and and form memory, but also your strategy, the strategy that you use to come up with new ideas. So, um, for example, some recent research um, revealed some some cognitive research using fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is basically a technique that enables us to see changes in metabolism in the brain, which is correlated with changes in activation in the brain. Um, And basically, these studies have revealed that people who are highly anxious are much more likely to rely on an analytical approach to solving a problem or coming up with new ideas. And that's opposed to people who are less anxious or you know, at, at a maximum not pathologically anxious. And they tend to uh, rely more on processes underlying insight. So to, to, by insight, I mean like that, that shower eureka moment where you're not really focused on anything, but the solution to this problem you've been you know, plagued by just pops right into your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so anxiety, people who are anxious tend to be unable to engage in that more sort of creative and um, insight-based process. Uh, and so as a result, that'll sort of um, restrict your ability to achieve certain cognitive states. Um, and, uh, but then in terms of, you know, h- how does anxiety more broadly affect sort of cognition in general? Well, chronic anxiety, um, when somebody has something like generalized anxiety disorder, uh, that's when we begin to talk about words like stress, um, chronic stress, um, because now, as opposed to just having this acute, it's it, as opposed to having like an anxiety attack where it's a very acute, short-lived cognitive state. Mm-hmm. Now you're having this prolonged cognitive state, and so you start to have changes in hormone levels uh, begin to have ramifications for your peripheral physiology as well as your nervous system. So you have elevated glucocorticoid signaling. So uh, many of us have heard of you know cortisol. And that's a that's a stress related hormone that basically prepares our body to deal with, you know, some threat in our environment. Right. Um, but if you're chronically anxious and you have chronic elevations of cortisol, your brain actually um, it, it's it's less capable of forming new synaptic connections. So um, new conversations between neurons are less likely to occur. And our ability to form those new synaptic connections is a major, major component of why we can learn new things and adapt to new information. And so when you're highly anxious or you know, chronically stressed, you're just less able to adapt to new information. 
That's really interesting that you that you said that, even with the analytical stuff a little bit, because um, I tend to find that, you know, I, I'm a person that also suffers from general anxiety disorder, and, I, and that's the reason why I talk about mental health issues so many times. I'm always wondering, well, why is it I'm forgetting things? Why am I stressed out? And I'm always wondering, how is, a stress, how is stress affecting my brain? How is a stress affecting my mind? So are there just, are there, are there centers that are just not connecting to each other, like you said? Is there, is, there, is there parts of the brain that are also shutting down in the middle of an anxiety attack? What's, 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 the physiology, or what's going on in the brain in the middle of an anxiety attack? Sure, yeah. So, um, so basically, you know, again, this, you're, we're, we're really discussing towards the limits of our current understanding here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, I mean, in a nutshell, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you precisely what's going on. Right. And why it is that you and I, by the way, are, 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 um, are prone to having these chronically, uh, this chronic anxiety. But um, basically, uh, the hypothesis, right, and I think most people who study this would agree, is that there is some distributed circuit in the brain that is just more active and that it can be more active because you inherited a predisposition to having it be more active. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain genes that seem to be associated with that. Um, or, or, you know, you've had some traumatic experience that has then modified, literally sculpted the way those circuits behave. You know, you were traumatized in the past or you associated some horrible emotional experience um, you know, with some environment, some interaction, you know, interacting with, with kids at a party, you were humiliated. And so now on, you have this difficulty interacting with large groups of people, right? So, or, you know, you could just inherit, uh, an increased baseline level of activity in this, the same circuit that's influenced by the kid who is humiliated. You know, you can inherit just an, an elevated baseline level in that circuit. Um, and so it, it's, it could be one of the two, it could be both of those things. It's probably an, uh, uh, you know, a collaboration or a conspiracy between those two things that, um, that results in this just like chronically elevated level of anxiety. You're just more likely to respond to a given environmental stimulus with anxiety than somebody who doesn't have these predispositions. Right. And then I think that's what it's so interesting about this subject is, is that, uh, you know, a lot of times when we think about addiction, we don't realize this other side of the mental process of people, you know, suffering, going through pain, having mental illness, and they're trying to solve a problem. And, you know, we're always trying to get away from discomfort and we're always trying to feel better about things. But it's funny how our brains, you know, kind of trick us into this other sense of comfort that doesn't exist. You know, for example, like if I'm addicted to drugs, even though I feel better temporarily, I'm actually hurting myself even more, which could be creating more anxiety. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So you would you would agree with George Coop. Uh, and by the way, he is the chief of the NIAAA, which is essentially NIH's subgroup dedicated to alcoholism. Uh, but essentially, um, it seems to be the case that some people are more motivated by reward and some people are more motivated by punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least so you can and you can become more sensitive to one or the other throughout the course of your life. Uh, but exactly. So so it is certainly the case that some people engage you know, there are people for whom methamphetamine or even heroin are not addictive. And, but there are, you know, a lot of people for whom they are profoundly addictive. And those people, you know, they, they could very well just have, excuse me, an increased sensitivity to punishment, right? So the effects of, and when I say punishment, I mean just any kind of negative outcome right. um, that they didn't necessarily expect. They are just more profoundly altered by that punishment than somebody who is less motivated, less sensitive to that punishment. And so that pervades, you know, beyond just addiction, that actually even changes the way people's attention uh, uh, functions. And so, you know, there are some people um, for whom, uh, uh, um, you know, punishment, who are less uh, uh, influenced by punishment, these tend to be people who are slightly more uh, impulsive and perhaps might be considered uh, uh, at a greater risk for having something like ADHD. Um, and it's just because the way their circuitry is organized, um, results in them learning more or taking in more information or changing their future behavioral patterns more from the expectation of future reward than the expectation of future punishment. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're right on the money that people who are, are, um, who are beginning with a greater sensitivity to negative emotional, uh, uh, processes are likely at a greater risk of becoming addicted because these drugs give that temporary respite um, from that, that, that negative, uh, those negative emotional processes. 
What about a non-biological, or I'm sorry, non-chemical addictions, even though it's kind of funny that it's all chemicals, but, um, but sure. just other, other addictions like sex or um, shopping or gambling and stuff. What, what's going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, and, you know, you, you, you almost answered the question, you know, in your, in your own question, right? It is all chemical, Right. And so uh, just because, you know, shopping, gambling, just because they don't directly, they don't like cross a blood brain barrier and like interact with that circuitry in a pharmacological way, doesn't mean that they're not directly changing this, the activity within those very same circuits. And so, you know, when I was describing some of the sort of psychological effects of cocaine, I was talking about, I talked about gambling, right? So, you know, pretend that you're walking into a casino in Las Vegas. The activity in the very same circuit that cocaine activates is slightly elevated, more elevated than you would be outside of that casino. Because right now, your brain subconsciously knows you might be closer to reward than you were before you entered the casino. Okay, well, now imagine you're walking up to a roulette wheel, and that's your favorite game, right? So now the activity in your, that, that mesocortical, mesostriatal, or let's just call it the mesolimbic dopaminergic circuitry, now the activity is even higher. And now imagine you put a bet, you place the bet on whatever it is you like to bet on. Um, now the activity in that circuit is, is, is pretty much as high as it's going to be because you really expect you're going to win. Well, when, when you take cocaine, that very same circuit is hyperactivated. Now, cocaine hyperactivates it much higher, much more than gambling does. But regardless, you know, just like you can become addicted to that hedonic pleasure of cocaine or heroin, by the way, or any of these drugs, you can become addicted to that hedonic pleasure derived from the expectation of reward. And so, you know, similarly, you know, whatever it is, shopping, eating, by the way, you know, all of these things that are associated with positive, you know, hedonic pleasure can become addictive and they can convince you to, they, they can prevent you from inhibiting those urges because your brain expects such reward by engaging in those behaviors. That's really interesting. You're talking, especially with the expectation, because one of the theories I've been trying to kind of work out on, on my own is, is do we have this kind of complex where the grass is greener on the other side, where we're kind of, it's the anticipatory effect that we enjoy more than even sometimes getting it. And that's why sometimes we'll think, oh, if I just had a better job or if I just had a, a different husband or wife or if I, this anticipatory kind of thing, even I see sometimes maybe in religion that when they think that maybe um, heaven or hell or these other anticipatory rewards might be triggering off something there. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the, the circuitry devoted to the expectation of reward is not the same as the circuitry associated with the hedonic pleasure derived from the reward. So, for example, um, you know, let's take that gambling example or, or shopping or eating or whatever it is. Right before you get that reward, that's when your dopamine levels are the highest. Right. And so that is a very motivating signal. Um, and so, and actually, when you get the reward, the dopamine levels don't don't uh, skyrocket, right? Now it's other neurochemistry and circuitry that come into play and sort of give you the reward, whatever the nature of the reward is. Maybe it's an orgasm. Maybe it's just calmness. Maybe it's just alleviation of anxiety. You know, whatever it might be, it's it's not punishment. <laughs> you know. Um, and so, so now with regards to grass is greener, I mean, that, that is certainly a more complex process, but absolutely it's involved that you would expect that some, some future behavior, some change in your environment, if you expect it's going to be associated with some positive outcome, then you're engaging that very same uh, circuitry. So what happens when, uh, I know there's a lot of times, you know, when we're young, you know, we, like we smoke pot for the very first time and uh, it's like probably one of the best experiences we have, but as we continue to do um, these things, like we continue to smoke pot or sometimes people, you know, when they go skydiving, the more they skydive, the experience seems to get less and less and less. It's not, it's not as good as the first time. What's going on there? Yeah, there's a bunch to talk about there. Um, but in a nutshell, right? So first there is the, the adaptation to the chronic presence of the drug. And, uh, and cannabis is actually a little bit unique in that your actual physiology changes as you age. And that's why a lot of people begin to have these paranoid and fear associated condition, uh, experiences. You know, they, you know, they might have smoked pot all through high school and maybe even college. And then they stop for whatever reason. And then they smoke pot again in their mid 30s, late 30s. And they have this panic attack. Well, it's because your actual physiology has changed. What your cannabinoid receptors are doing, which is which are the receptors to which THC and CBD bind, they are now just doing different things in your brain than they were doing when you're in high school or college. So, so that all that to say, cannabis is a little bit different. But when you're saying just you know 
alcohol, whatever it is, cocaine, heroin, the first time you do these drugs is when they're the most rewarding. Particularly if you continue to engage in the use of those drugs, your brain is adapting, right? You're, you're changing the number of receptors that are present, uh, available to be bound. The very receptors themselves are changing. They're less activated by the drugs. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're, there's just what we would call a neuroplastic adaptation. Your brain is changing its architecture mm -hmm. to try and bring itself closer to your baseline. Now, when you were talking about the, the behavioral stuff like skydiving or whatever it might be, you know, driving super duper fast or just engaging in sort of kind of risky behavior, um, there is that, right, that, you know, you're, you're just sort of used to it. But um, inherent to becoming used to something is the absence of what we would call novelty. And so um, not only does the expectation of reward elevate dopaminergic transmission, and by the way, it's not just dopaminergic, it's monoaminergic, right? So it's dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all of these neurotransmitters are sort of activating. And, um, and in some people, by the way, there's a theory that some people find greater hedonic pleasure from dopamine, some from norepinephrine, whereas you know some might be very aversive to norepinephrine. So everybody's a little bit different here, which might explain part of the reason for why some people love skydiving, whereas I would never skydive. <laughs> Um, it freaked me out. Um, so, um, but in any case, novelty is another highly arousing um, stimulus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the novelty associated with skydiving, I mean, that is such a departure from your day-to-day -day life that so much of your novelty-devoted circuitry is activated so profoundly. And once, you know, you get used to skydiving, once it's no longer novel, then you don't get as a rigorous an activation of that circuitry. And as a result, it just loses its... its uh, it's it's shine. <laughs> what uh, I want to go back a little bit of what you're saying when it comes to um, we we're talking about the the marijuana and then when you get older you get paranoid or you know um, get anxious more. I tend to find that happen to me. I used to smoke all the time when I was younger, you know, and then now when I'm older, I was just I was having a conversation with a friend about this. I was like, I'm get I get paranoid and I'm like, well, why? What's going on in my mind? Why 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 am I getting paranoid? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny for the longest time, you know, people would explain it away by saying, well, now you just have more to worry about. But the reality <laughs> is, I mean, that's a kid. You worry about stupid things. You know, they might not be, you know, big, you know, catastrophic things to worry about, but you're still worried about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that to me is, is a poor explanation. But some recent studies actually last year, 2014, there was a study that basically showed um, a change in the ways that cannabinoid receptors influence uh uh, fear-associated circuitry. And so um, the, the, the actual um, specific subnucleus escapes me, but um, like CB1 receptor, um, the effects of CB1 receptor stimulation in like the extended amygdala are just fundamentally different mm -hmm. in an adult versus a child, and, and, or a child, you know, an adolescent. Um, and that's not, it, you know, that wouldn't be the only example of that happening. So for example, um, when we talk about like benzodiazepines, like Xanax or, or Valium, in other words, alprazolam or diazepam. Um, these are drugs that bind to GABA receptors, right? And believe it or not, um, and, and so what these GABA receptors do, you know, to not get too deeply into the weeds, is that they allow um, certain ions to flow into a neuron, right? And so that'll have some ramifications for signaling. Ions being like, you know, you can have a negative ion or a positive ion, right? And so that can be an activating signal or an inhibiting signal. And so in the case of benzodiazepines, it's an inhibiting signal. Well, in, and that's in adults, but in children, the direction that the ions flow is actually the opposite the, uh, than, you know, of that in adults. So you get the opposite sort of, uh, uh, um, yeah, the opposite pharmacological effect because the receptor, the physiology of the receptors themselves just fundamentally change as you age. We don't know exactly why that happens. It's under genetic control completely, but it does happen. And so as a result, administering a benzodiazepine to a kid, while it would probably sedate them, um, uh, in certain parts of the brain, it's actually excitatory. It's actually activating. Um, so there's a bunch of examples of just, you know, changes in physiology as you age as a function of genetic regulation. So if we have this ability to change our brains, um, are we able to change them in these situations? Like if I want to, you know, smoke a joint or do something with a friend and I don't want to feel that way, can I put my brain into a different state of mind? Is there anything I can do to maybe change that? Unfortunately not. Well, at least not yet. Not until we realize the, uh, the future in Neuromancer, right? Or the Matrix. Um, but until we realize that, really you are a spectator of your neurophysiology. I mean, you really feel like you are in the driver's seat, right? That you, know, you are the person determining your behavior. But in reality, your behavior is being determined by a huge swath 
of subconscious signaling that you have no, over which you have zero control, right? You couldn't you couldn't modify it even if you tried. Wow. Um, and and so as a result, you know the the parts of our brain that are devoted or that evolve to control mood, you know, fear, um, um, aggression, uh, uh, um, libido, right, sexual drive, all of these things are in such very very primitive parts of the brain that are aren't really accessible to the the circuitry that we would associate with conscious awareness. And in reality, the way this works is that this subconscious circuitry performs a huge uh, a cascade of computation. You know, they're basically performing calculations. And then at the end of this uh, cascade, this waterfall of calculations, you know, your, your, your more frontal structures, your conscious awareness circuitry, let's call it, receives the final pass. And you feel like, oh my gosh, I just had this wonderful idea. Or, you know, I just decided to begin working out. In reality, all of this subconscious processing was occurring under the hood without your awareness. So when we're, when we're taking drugs like psychedelics or even if, you know, smoking marijuana, do you think that's paying a, playing a part in our experiences when it comes to um, these ideas or creating new ideas? You know, you hear a lot of uh, musicians say, well, I made this song while I was high and I saw this new vision while I was high. Uh, what's going on there? How does dopamine play a part in that? And are we accurately representing information? It's it's irrefutable. We almost don't really even need to study whether or not artists tend to use more drugs than non-artists. <laughs> uh, I think it's pretty clear that that's the case. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, all of the great artists, you know, I mean, you name anybody and they engage in the use of some drug. We could probably say that for most people, to be frank. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, but in any case, whether it's caffeine or alcohol um, or Jimi Hendrix doing LSD, right? Uh, some of the best music in ever <laughs> has been generated by altered states of consciousness. Right. And I bet you that Beethoven drank his fair share of alcohol, you know? And so, um, you know, it, there are some studies to suggest that there is greater engagement of the circuit. Basically, it enables your brain, your, your, your brain to enter into a cognitive state that isn't so dominated by its immediate environment. Um, and, and, you know, keep in mind, this is a sort of putative explanation. Um, but essentially, it's, it's as though, and, and oftentimes you hear a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus, uh, uh, talked about as though, um, if you remember that, that, that model, I, uh, that I suggest that metaphor as though, or, or, or that, that your, your brain kind of functions as though it's a parliament and there's just all this arguing. And, um, you know, when you're highly anxious, it's like a, a person with a bullhorn screaming, right? That's the only thing that anybody can hear because it's such a high signal. Mm -hmm. Well, when you consume, you know, any of a variety of drugs, it's altering the balance of those voices, right? Of those signals. And so your anterior cingulate gyrus could be sort of like a cameraman, right? Who is deciding to focus on one or more people in the parliament, right? And so your anterior cingulate gyrus is sort of sensitive to a variety of sub-threshold signals that normally wouldn't be able to come to the fore because you're so focused on your you know, immediate environment, whether you're stressed out, you're anxious, whatever it might be. Um, but when you're under the influence of alcohol or you know, cannabis or whatever, um, you are just, th those signals are less dominant. And so as a result, these other signals that normally wouldn't be able to, to you know, uh, to come to you are able to sort of percolate up, um, and, and achieve dominance. And, and so, you know, that, that is, that's very speculative and it sounds romantic. Mm -hmm. It could very well be true. Um, but I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's perhaps a more comprehensive explanation than is what's really going on. And, and, you know, what all, all that needs to happen for you to be able to achieve cognitive states and ideas that you normally couldn't achieve is just altering neurochemistry. You know, what these drugs are doing, are they're just changing the way circuitry is communicating with each other, right? Whether it's activating more communication with a stimulant, right? You're just getting greater synaptic transmission. Um, or it's just generally inhibiting certain um, circuitry so that other circuitry can now begin to play a greater role in your conscious awareness. You know, that would be through the use of like opioids or, you know, alcohol or benzos or whatever. Um, now, psychedelics are a little bit different in that they don't really do either one of those two things. But, you know, you could still explain it under the same uh, model where, you know, psychedelics, they're just interacting with a different circuit. But that since that circuit, the serotonergic circuit, is so widely distributed, it's going to alter everything from, you know, sensory perception, certainly, to, you know, the your ability to associate ideas that normally wouldn't be associated. 
Um, so basically, I mean, I, and that's a pretty big explanation. I mean, it, there's no way that that explanation is wrong, <laughs> but, or I mean, of, of course it could be wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it just, it, it encompasses everything. Right. Uh, but the reality is, you know, that's essentially what these drugs are doing, right? They're just changing the way neurochemical signaling is occurring in your brain. What about the opposite effect with people that aren't creative or that lack motivation and, and, and dopamine? The reason why I bring this up is I think I saw a study where they said that mice, there was, uh, I guess there was mice that didn't have dopamine and they actually died even though food was in front of them. They didn't have the motivation to actually even get food even though they needed it. What's playing a part in the mind there? What's going on with dopamine there? Yeah. So, um, so dopamine plays a, a major role with regards to sort of motivation um, and also your sensitivity to, you know, positive, the expectation of reward and then also punishment. And, um, yeah, it's true that, um, there are people, uh, who have, you know, basically, you know, I, I, what comes to mind immediately are these, these five mutations or short, short nucleotide polymorphisms or just, you know, repeat alleles of the dopamine transporter or, you know, uh, a short nucleotide polymorphism in, in a certain dopamine receptor, the D2 receptor. Um, or, you know, um, whatever, they, a, a mutation in one of the enzymes that's responsible for the degradation of dopamine in a certain part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. And so all of these things will, you know, depending on your unique constellation of these mutations, as well as other mutations that will determine what happens after dopamine has interacted with your brain, will sort of collaborate or conspire, depending on your perspective, um, to determine how much um, how sensitive you are to, um, you know, po the expectation of positive outcomes or the expectation of negative outcomes. So dopamine is sort of the arbiter of that process. Um, and it's not necessarily, well, it, 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 I mean, everything from the number of receptors to which dopamine can bind to the, the amount of dopamine you synthesize to the, um, the rate at which dopamine is, de is degraded, all of those things can sort of um, bias you to being more impulsive, uh, which, by the way, could be associated with greater creativity, right? Your mind is just, it's moving a little bit more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but the cost of that can be a, a lower ability for stability, for cognitive stability. And so th there seems to be this trade-off in, in the brain between uh, impulsivity and, you know, sort of speeding between new thoughts and the ability to maintain a certain thought for an extended period of time. And of course now I'm sure, you know, you're starting to think maybe ADHD is associated with this. Mm -hmm. And absolutely that, that is one of the explanations that is sort of beginning to, to rise to the fore is that, you know, all of these various mutations, you know, it could be just one, it could be multiple will, will help to determine where on that spectrum of impulsivity you might fall. Excellent. I know, I know by now there's probably a lot of people like, oh my gosh, I want, I want to know more. I want to ask some more questions. Like, so let's talk a little bit about your Periscope real quick. What made you decide to do your Periscope and how can people find out about your Periscope and what you do? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, um, it's funny. Yeah. Periscope is a pretty uh, wild app. Um, and, uh, in case you're not aware of it, it's sort of like it's Twitter's kind of, uh, uh strange, uh, sibling app. Um, and basically what it enables you to do is, is live stream, um, but what's cool is that it also enables people from pretty much all over the world. I mean, I've talked to people in Mongolia and, you know, the, you know, Scandinavia and Southeast Asia, um, all at the same time in the Middle East, you know, they can come into the, to the, um, the stream and then chat in real time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, one day I was just, I had, you know, some free time. And so I decided to just say, you know, I, I'm a brain researcher, ask me anything. Um, and, you know, I make it clear that I'm, I'm in no way an expert in everything, right? I'm just doing my best to dispense what knowledge I've been able to get, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> during my time studying. Um, but basically, yeah, and I, you know, I, I didn't expect to do this. And, uh, you know, as evidence of that, um, my strange username, uh, I probably wouldn't have picked it. <laughs> I thought I was going to do this for real. Uh, but so my, my handle is, is underscore anthropoid. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, I, I definitely intend to continue doing it. Um, the reception has been just much, much more positive than I ever expected. Um, and I've learned a lot by doing this. Like, you know, I've just exposed myself to so much greater information than I normally would have, you know, because it doesn't immediately benefit my own professional development. Well, now, I mean, these are the conversations that I, that got me interested in neuroscience in the, in the first place. 
And, you know, when you're working in the lab, you don't necessarily get to have these conversations so frequently. And so Periscope enables me to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, everybody's welcome. Uh, I'll do my best to answer any question that you might have. <laughs> you usually uh, get a lot of questions. I see it's like, man, just question after question. And I think you do a pretty good job, though. In fact, that's what I really loved about, like, watching you on your Periscope was is that you were very informative. You answered pretty much any question, you know, and then I, I loved how you showed some of the research you're working on. I think there was a a periscope a couple of weeks ago I was watching where you were showing the actual um, like visual aspects of the brain and stuff. And I think you do a really good job interacting. And I've learned a lot of stuff from it. That's why I want people to find out more about you and, and, and really learn stuff because I think it's, I think this is inter- like a fascinating uh, subject to talk about. So yeah, thanks man. Yeah. Like another thing I'll do is just sort of invite people on in while I do such certain experiments, particularly with a microscope or, you know, handling uh, brains and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And it's true that, you know, there, there sometimes are a good number of people in the room, but because of that, this sort of, sort of close knit social group has emerged on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, where I'm interacting, you know, that's basically how we connected, right, Ben? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so as a result, I have these pretty long conversations about like, you know, does free will exist? Is artificial <laughs> intelligence a threat? You know, how, you know, and, and how, how, um, you know, what is the effect of, of addiction? You know, if, if I, if I was addicted to a drug, will my children be addicted to a drug? Right. right. And so I can't answer these questions in real time as effectively as I can over something like Twitter. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I hope uh, at some, some point I can maybe bring you back and talk about that free will stuff. Cause I love studying philosophy and these really other <laughs> questions, but I really wanted to get into uh, anxiety and addiction today. Cause it's, it's something that's very important to me, but definitely, definitely check out Ian. He's, he's, he's brilliant in doing this stuff. And what do you, what are you uh, working on now? What's, what's, what do you got going on? And what are some things that you'd like people to know about you that you'd be working on in the future? Yeah. So, so my next, my next big plan, I mean, beyond the lab is, um, because of the limitations of both Twitter and Periscope, uh, my goal is going to be to start putting out a podcast of my very own. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm a very ne- uh, I'm a big neophyte when it comes to this, though, so um, I can't promise uh, the best audio quality. But um, the idea will be, you know, we'll talk about discrete topics like, okay, what is ADHD? And the idea will be that I, I will do my best to accrue the knowledge derived from the, the last year's research. You know, all the papers or as many papers as I can read of the last year. That, by the way, you guys fund. So, so a major motivation behind all of this is is that you know, Ben, you, as, assuming that you live in the United States, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a portion of your tax dollars goes to the NIH um, and 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 the NSF and these these agencies within the government that then fund uh, over a third of total research that occurs in this country. And so, you guys are paying my salary. I am your employee, and. Um, and so, but when I finish my lab work, I'm going to publish in a journal, something like Nature, maybe Cell or Science. And if you want to see the fruits of the labor that you funded, you're going to have to pay 60 to $80 to read 12 pages worth of my research. And to me, that's, you know, it's unethical, really. I mean, it's, it's asinine. Right. And so, um, yeah, the idea will be that I, I'm going to do my best to summarize the research of the latest year in a given topic, you know, ADHD, addiction, Alzheimer's. And try and, and deliver it in, you know, somewhere anywhere between five to, you know, 15 or 20 minute chunks so that, you know, you can sort of go through it at your own pace and you don't have to deal with the chaos that sometimes occurs in Periscope. Right. And if people want to find out more about you other than just Periscope, is there any way they can find out about you? Yeah, just reach out on, on Twitter, under, uh, uh, at underscore Anthropoid. And uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's chat. <laughs> okay, and I'll, put, I'll definitely put that in the show notes for anybody that's interested and wants to talk. And I do encourage you guys to like check them out. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, um, Ian, I think that's it. That's all we got today, buddy. Thank you so much. Hopefully we can bring you back at some time. I'd love to talk about free will and this other stuff at some point. I think those are interesting topics. So Yeah, it'd be my pleasure, Ben. Awesome. Thank you so much. Anyways, that's our show today, ladies and gentlemen. Check me out at BenFamaJr.com. Don't forget um, to join our mailing list. We have a brand new documentary that's coming out called A Reason to Believe. It's about the psychology of belief and why do we believe what we believe. Um, We're looking to actually launch the website uh, next month and we're doing our crowdfunding campaign to finish the film because we've already done the interviews with like Michael Shermer, Peter Bogosian, Kayla Black. So um, we're looking to just start to get this release and get out there. So join our mailing list, benfamajr.com or you could check out our uh, landing page at uh, reasontobelievefilm.com and that'll be our full-blown website when we release that. So, all right, guys, thank you. That's it. That's the end of our show. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Reality Trip with Ben Farmer Jr. Check out more great content by visiting benfarmerjr.com.